0: We are in the book of Colossians. I'm calling it Essential Jesus for Unsettled Days. What we've seen so far is Paul talks first about God the Father. Then he talks about Jesus as the resurrected king of the universe. And now he's going to talk about church, ministry, pastoring. And so Paul is going to lay out His characteristics, his qualities, his passions, his concerns as a minister of the gospel, as a pastor, qualities of a pastor. What qualities in a pastor do you want? (laughs) The Hartford Institute for Religious Studies did a study and they surveyed a ton of churches. And they asked him that question. Number one and number two, he needs to be funny and he needs to be under 40. I've aged out. No one wants me anymore. (laughs) How about you? Here's what I've found. Some churches want a pastor that's hip and happening and urban and has a good fashion sense. Doesn't matter what he says as long as he looks good. Some churches want a politician, like polished and has the right things to say and just kind of like kisses all the babies and does not hug the ladies, but shakes all the guys' hands and just all the babies are like, yeah, oh, what a beautiful baby you have. She's so awesome. Oh, it's a boy? Oh, sorry about that. (laughs) Right? I've had people say this. I had a lady say this to me. If I'm gonna to come to this church, I want you to look at me in the eye when you're preaching. I said, Well, if I'm talking about adultery and fornication, do you still want me to look at you in the eye? There are certain subjects I'm like, I'm not sure I should look at anyone right now. Sometimes I don't wanna look people in the eye because they're doing this or this or this. There's a lot of that now, like, hmm. <laughs> I had a guy at RCC he'd come one time. And he introduced himself after a service when we were outdoors, he goes, you know, I want a pastor who's a man's man. I said, okay, what does that mean exactly? Can you explain that to me? So he goes, I just want, I want a pastor that goes out in the wilderness and hunts and fishes and drives a four wheel drive. I, 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 you know, I gotta have a pastor that'll shoot a deer. I said, all right, I don't know. I think that's how he chose his wife. She dropped a four point, he just dropped to a knee. Marry me, babe. <laughs> we all have these ideas, and everyone has a different idea of what a pastor is and what a pastor should be. Well, we get the Bible here. And the Bible's gonna lay out some qualifications that I think, not just for pastors, but ministers. And here's the truth every single one of us is a minister of the gospel. We're called the priesthood of believers. Once you believe in Jesus, You're a minister. So these are actually qualities that all of us should be saying, I want that in my life. And they're brilliant. So let's jump in. Quality number one, Paul has a method and it's rejoicing in substitutionary suffering. Check this out. Verse 24, Colossians 1. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. If you've come to Edgewater for any time, you know this. You know that we don't preach, you believe in Jesus, and everything's going to be easy. Jesus says, John 16, in this world, you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I've overcome. So hard isn't bad. I've said that probably 10 times from up here. I say it all, time, all the time to my kids and to staff. Hard isn't bad. It's suffering, it's difficulty that actually creates in us the characteristics that Jesus wants for us for eternity. Job says this, when I'm tried, I'm going to come forth as gold. That gold fears no fire. You're going to have suffering. Now we can't suffer all the time because that means you're a fan of the OSU beavers. All right. Can't have that, but you need some. But that's not what Paul's talking about right here. Read it carefully. What does he say? Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. See, this is a different kind of suffering. This is suffering for other people. But then Paul says something that a lot of pastors read really fast and skip over because it doesn't make sense. It seems like Paul is saying something that goes contrary to everything that we believe about Jesus Christ's work on the cross. Listen. Now rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction." You should read that and say, what? What did Paul just say? Is Paul saying that Jesus Christ's suffering on the cross was insufficient? And now you and I need to participate somehow in suffering to make up the insufficiency of the cross. Because that sounds like what he's saying. That do you and I need to be in pain to kind of pay for some of our sins? That's the idea that's been derived from this text right here. So the late, Saint, or the late Pope Paul John II uh, did I say it right? No, the late John Paul II. Hmm? Uh, man, I've lost his name. You guys know what I'm talking about. He's the Pope. Got the great hat, right? And the robe. So the late John Paul II. Uh, pope, big time guy, read a excerpt of a biography about him. And everywhere Pope John Paul II would go, he would take a whip with him. And at night he would whip himself, it's called self-flagellation. And it's because of this text right here. He was making up for the lack of the cross. Or if you've paid attention around Easter, Good Friday in the Philippines, there's a village called San Fernando in the Philippines that every single Good Friday, the Friday before Easter, 10 men volunteer to be crucified. Yeah. You thought volunteering in the kid's wing was hard. (laughs) That takes it up a notch. They are whipped 39 times, beaten. They take a cross, carry it up to the top of a hill. Real spikes are driven into their hands and they are hung for hours. That's how they celebrate Easter. I prefer painting an egg and eating some chocolate. Thank you very much. (laughs) It's the same idea. We're filling up. What was lacking, that you and I, we need to experience some pain. We got to pay as well, that it was insufficient. Is that true? Was the cross insufficient? Do we need to make up for the deficiency? If you struggle with this, read carefully Hebrews 10. I don't have time to go over the whole thing. I'll give you the center point of it. It's chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. But when Christ had offered for all time, how long is all time? A single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What did that last sentence say? The payment on the cross was one and done for every single Christian period. There is no more sacrifice. There is no more suffering that you and I have to do. So what in the world is Paul talking about? Remember this. We said this when we introduced the book. Paul has put, been put in jail for preaching the gospel. That's where he's at. So he's in jail, he writes this epistle because what was happening in Rome at this time, 50 AD, what was happening in this time period was there was a rising response to the gospel. And there would be 10 waves of bad Caesars who would actually be attacking the church for Jesus Christ. And Paul is the first, the tip of the spear that's happening in this persecution. So he's been beaten and he's been jailed and he's waiting trial because there's an attack against Christianity happening. So what Paul is saying is this, I'm so glad it's me. I take joy that they found their scapegoat that their attention now has been diverted from you guys and it's now on me and I'm the center of attention. On the tip of the spear, I'm the one being beaten. That I've given you a break because I'm the one that's taking it. I've taken up my cross, they're punishing me, no problem. I rejoice that I'm the one and it's not you. How good is that? Isn't that what every Christian should say? Take me instead. Take me instead. And we have these phenomenal examples of men who have done that throughout history. I'll give you one, a short one of him. His name is Maximilian Colby. There's a movie made about him, you can look it up. So in World War II, he was part of the first wave that was sucked up by the Nazis and he was stuck in Auschwitz, 1940, just beginning of it. And while he was there, someone escaped. And so the SS decided, we are going to make an example. No one will try to escape from Auschwitz again. So this is what they did. They grabbed 10 people and they said, because this one guy escaped, the 10 of you are gonna be put in this dungeon and you're gonna starve to death as an example. So they start just going through and grabbing random people. I think it was the sixth man they grabbed. He fell to his face and said, no, not me. I have a wife and children. So Maximilian Kolbe, a priest, stood forward and said, hey, guard, can I go in place of this man? Now, normally what would happen at Auschwitz is you'd get beaten for doing something like that. 11 men would starve to death. But for some reason, this guard looked at him and said, yes. As they took the 10 men and they put them down and they started to starve them to death. Normally that would take two or three days because they were all walking skeletons. And so Maximilian Kolbe, the men are dying. And with each one of them, he is loving them, praying for them, being with them, and they all die and he's left. And didn't die for seven days, eight days, nine days, 10 days, 11 days, 12 days, 13 days. It says one of the priests just freaked out then and said, what are we doing? This is the greatest man I have ever seen in my life. And on day 14, they couldn't take it anymore. So they grab some carbolic acid and they begin to inject it into Maximilian Kolbe to kill him. And when they're doing it, he puts his hand on the guard that is killing him and prays God's blessing and favor on him. And then he dies the 14th of August, 1941. How brilliant is that? That's what people that love Jesus do. No, I'll be the tip of the spear. No, take me instead of him. Now, why would Christians do that? because isn't that what Jesus did for us? No, no, not Matt Heverly. Take me in place of him. That's what's amazing. The man that he took his place for, a Polish man, Frank, uh, I'll probably mess up his name, Kajousinek lived in 95 years of age. On the 14th of August of every single year of his life, he would pilgrim back to Auschwitz and give thanks for Maximilian. I love that. That's what Paul's saying right here. Take me instead. Take me instead. I wanna be the first in line. The thing that bothers me sometimes about pastors is they expect pastoral privilege. They expect, I don't wanna do the hard things or the dirty things or the difficulty. No way. A real minister, a real pastor says me first, take me first. I'll do the hard stuff so that you don't have to do it. It's what Paul does right here. He rejoices in substitutionary suffering. Take me instead. That's great ministry. Number two, he has a mindset. He says this, I'm a steward. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully. Known, he's a steward. Just a little news flash. I don't own Edgewater Christian Fellowship. Who does? We do, right here, right? It's our church, it's our community, it's our thing. There's no such thing as my ministry in the church because ministry is never owned, it's simply borrowed. And there's a time that the borrowing ends and your stewardship of that ministry, the, the race that you've run, the lap that you've run, it's over and then someone else takes it over. Very different than the business world. A business, you can start a business and you pour into that business and you love that business and you invest in it and it grows. And then you decide one day, okay, I'm done with the business and you can sell it, you can keep it, you can give it as an inheritance, you can do something with it, right? So at church, what happens? When I've run my race, what happens? Do I get a sell edge water? You're going to give it to somebody that I, you know, what happens? You're going to just keep it? No, I've run my race. I've done my stewardship. And on that day, I hand the keys to the next person that as elders we have prayed for and sought for, and they're the one. Now going to happen one day. Now I plan on hanging out after that and being like, music's too loud, turn it down. <laughs> Why are you singing that song, man? We never sang that when I was here. Why are you preaching on that subject? I preached on that 10 years ago. Wasn't that good enough? Right? Oh, I plan on doing that. It's gonna be awesome. (laughs) But one day, my lap has finished. It's my job as steward to simply hand the baton to the next person that God raises up. Matt, why would you pour your life into that? Why would you do that to just one day just say, okay, here it is. Paul puts it like this in verse 25. He says, it was given to me for you because God gave me something that I couldn't shake. I tried to do anything but this. You can ask my wife. I could not shake it. This is what I had to do. Like I've thought about, man, other jobs would be really cool. I couldn't do them. I've always thought being the ice cream truck driver would be awesome. You get winners off. Everybody loves you, right? You play this great music. They flock out to you. They give you money. If you have a bad day, just go in back and grab an ice cream. It got better, right? I'm like, that's the job, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. In the old times, they'd call it a burden. I just had this, I, I, this is what I have to do. I can't do anything else. And I'm gonna run my lap. And when that lap is done, by prayerful consideration, it's baton, next person. See, stewardship is the only way to view ministry because when it's not mine and I don't own it, what happens is you're always looking for other people to help and to bless and to hand the baton to and be raising up the next generation because the church is always one generation from extinction. I'm just a steward. I got to run this race well, but I'm going to be looking for other people to come and to give ministry away to. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. You have to trust God more. You have to pray more. It's the right way to do it, right? Ministry, it's always stewardship. Number three, he's got a focus. It's the word of God. So he says this, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The focus on God's word. So I hear things about Edgewater and I'll hear this. I think it's goofy. People will say this, man, you guys up in Edgewater, all you do is study the Bible. All you do is like doctrine. I say, right, we're a church. What, what, what? Like, that's silly to me. I'm not coming to your son's birthday party and giving a sermon out of the Bible. Although I think I could, (laughs) try me, (laughs) right? It's church, it's what you do. It seems ridiculous to me. But for some reason, there's all these other things that have grabbed the focus today. Listen. The sharpest tool we have for ministry is God's word, period. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide, discern the very thoughts and intents of my heart. There's nothing as powerful as God's word, period. It's the only one supernaturally that can look into my heart and tell me where I'm actually at. That's why we preach the word of God. Thank you. But Paul has a specific part of the word of God that he has focused in on, and he calls it this, the mystery, hidden for the ages, but now revealed, which is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, what does this mean? The word mystery, it means this, Something that you had glimpses of. Something you had some information about, but it was kind of a little unclear. And then I was fully manifest. A hiddenness, but there were still some that you knew about it. And then all of a sudden it becomes completely manifest. So my best example is this. I was on the mission field for a while. And if you've ever been on the mission field, you know this. You eat something that I just have referred to now as mystery stew. Right? You're not sure what it is. It's kind of like, oh, what is this? And you end up eating it. Well, in Vanuatu, we'd go out and we'd go from village to village. Myself, Dominic Dunn, Josh Bossard, uh, Dave Corson. And when we'd be out, we'd end up at at someone's home and you'd be sitting there and they're very hospitable. So they're always gonna offer you something to eat. So you'd sit there and you'd talk a while and there'd be this big pot, aluminum pot, like you know, five gallon aluminum pot on a fire, just gurgling. And you're kind of starting to look over there when, when lunch or dinner's coming, because you'd see little parts like pop out. You'd be like, what was that? Was that a chicken beak? Was that a chicken foot? Oh no, what was that, right? You'd get glimpses of it, but you didn't know what you're going to eat till you went over there and you dip the ladle in. You take that ladle and you put that soup into your bowl. And then you knew for sure. And in Vanuatu, whatever you put in your bowl, you ate. You couldn't dump it back in. That was like an affront to them culturally. Whatever you put in your bowl, you're eating. You're stuck. So here's what I learned very quickly. Be first in line. (laughs) Go up there, dip the ladle in, mystery stew. Get it fully revealed what it is. It looks like the part of the chicken responsible for egg laying. If I saw that, then I'd be like, hey, Josh, I'd like to serve you just like Jesus. Here you go. And then I get the second ball. I know I'm wicked. I'll do it to you on the mission field. It's survival the fittest. Wait, man, it says you're supposed to rejoice in substitutionary suffering. Not on the mission field. Doesn't apply there. Get home. That's the whole application. That's like this. What you have in the Old Testament is these gurglings, if you would, these glimpses. And it creates a silhouette that fits Jesus perfectly, right? Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given, right? And his name shall be wonderful counselor, the mighty God. What? How can you have a child that's being born, but a son that's being given and he's God in the flesh? Like who checks those three boxes? Jesus. Isaiah 53, that brilliant song of the suffering servant that all of our iniquities will be laid on him, that by his stripes we'll be healed, that he's going to die for my sins. And Isaiah 53 says, he's going to be resurrected. What? Who checks those boxes? I can go on and on. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. It's a new way, not without outward rules like the Torah, but now it's gonna be written on the heart of every single believer. It's uh, Ezekiel 11 Ezekiel 36. The heart of stone is gonna be removed and a heart of flesh will be given to you. Who checks all these boxes I can go on and on and on? The Old Testament paints a perfect silhouette that Jesus Christ fits brilliantly. That's the mystery reveal, but here's what it is. The mystery is this that Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you know this? That we are created in the garden with glory. We talk a lot about original sin and we should, but you know what predates original sin? Glory. Read Psalm 8, Psalm 8 is a reflection on the creation of humanity. And it says this, we are created a little bit lower than the angels, but God crowned us with glory. It's the Hebrew word kavod. It's a word that's reserved for God alone. His kavod, his weight, his glory, his substance. You and I in the garden were crowned with it. You and I were created with glory. Oh man, I don't feel very glorious. I know because we lost it. The glory that we had, the glory we were designed for, the glory that we are supposed to have, we've lost it. And every one of us can feel that loss. It's why we feel like, man, there's something more to me, but I just can't seem to get to it. I, there should be more motivation to me. I've got these skills and these abilities, but I never seem to be able to get to them, right? You ever feel that? This weight of lack, of not getting it, of being less than you know that you are. That's that weight of glory that we know. We're missing. And here's the mystery. The way back to full glory is through Jesus Christ. If you got a chance, read Hebrews chapter two. It talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then verses nine and 10, it says this, that Jesus will lead many sons back to glory. Jesus is the route back to glory, him alone. The only hope for humanity to get back to the glory that we are designed with, that we can feel that hole that weight, the only hope is Jesus. The only hope for the drug addicted human being who's stuffing substance into that hole, that glory hole, the only hope for him, Christ in him, the hope of glory. The only hope for the teenager questioning their sexuality, their gender, the only hope for them, wondering, it feels like something's wrong with me. Yeah, there is. Their only hope is Christ in them, the hope of glory. The only hope for the alcoholic that keeps turning to a bottle to numb the fact that he knows he's missing the glory, that he's not what he's supposed to be. The only hope, Christ in them, the hope of glory. The only hope for the raging man who's so angry at everything because he knows he should be more. He knows he wakes up wrong. He knows it. The only hope, Christ in them. The only hope for the promiscuous person, seeking glory in other human beings, but never finding it and bouncing from one to the next, to the next. The only hope, Christ in them, the only hope of glory. That's what Paul preaches. That's what I preach. Second Corinthians 3.18 puts it like this, that as we keep our eyes fixed on him, we are transformed, metamorphosized by his spirit from glory to glory. More and more kavod is given back to us. Every day we walk with Jesus and follow him because he's the only hope of glory. At Edgewater, we don't preach programs. We don't preach rules or systems or religions. We don't preach cognitive behavioral therapy. We don't preach the wisdom of this age. We don't preach any of that. We preach a person, Jesus Christ, the only hope of glory. It's why I'm stubbornly Christ-centric. He's our hope. That's what Paul preaches. The word of God, the mystery revealed Christ in you, the only hope we have. Fourthly, he has a philosophy, hard work. Work hard, listen to this. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, kind of their twin neighboring city. And for all who have not seen me face to face, their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." He's got a philosophy of ministry, work hard. That four letter word, work. If someone wants to be a pastor because you think pastors only work one day a week, Paul would say newsflash, is hard work. Paul says, I struggle, I toil, I greatly struggle. Well, time out, Matt, wait a second. What about grace? He's talking about work. I, I, thought, I thought it was all grace. Let me read carefully for you. Listen to verse 29 again, because it's brilliant. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Here's what Paul is saying. When Paul labored, he found power. That's what the Christian minister finds. When you and I labor, we find power. And this is a theme that Paul has, this kind of dichotomy of these two, work and grace. Let me give you a couple other texts. First Corinthians 15, 10. But by the... Grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. When Paul labored, he found power." Or Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When Paul labored, he found power. power. There's a term for this, it's called grace is efficacious. Meaning God's grace will affect you. That here's what happens when you believe God gives you new desires. He changes your heart, you've got new desires. When you respond to those new grace given desires, What happens is you get a new power. When you labor, you find power. The Bible says this, with your new heart, you're gonna be grateful, Romans chapter one. And when you start acting grateful, you find more and more power to be grateful. The Bible says that with this new heart, you're gonna be able to forgive people, Ephesians chapter four. And when you forgive people, you'll find more power to be forgiving. The Bible says that with this new heart, you're gonna find a new desire to be generous. And when you're generous, you'll find more power to be generous, right? 2 Corinthians chapter eight. The Bible says that with this new power, you can be self-controlled. Galatians chapter five. The more you control yourself, the more power you find to control yourself. The Bible says with his new heart, you'll have an ability to love people. First John 3, 14. And as you love people, you'll find more power to love more people. It's when Paul labored, he found power. That to me is the key to the Christian walk. And here's my best explanation for it. Maybe it's like power steering. So I have a 1966 Volkswagen bus. It does not have power steering. In fact, it has power nothing. My weed eater is more powerful than it, right? So I'll be stuck somewhere where I need to really crank that wheel when I'm not moving. It takes everything you got to move the wheels on that car, right? And it's a lightweight vehicle because there's no power steering. I have a, Chevy truck, it has power steering. It weighs a whole bunch more than my boat. probably weighs as much as four Volkswagen buses. But man, I just touched that steering wheel and boom, I can turn the wheels. Why? Because of power steering. And here's the thing about power steering. It's waiting the whole time for you to just engage it. The moment you turn the steering wheel, the power steering kicks in and helps you. I think that's the key to the Christian walk. The moment God prods you to do something, puts the desire on your heart, if you will take that step forward, you'll find power in that moment. So God is whispering to you, prodding you, to witness to your neighbor or to your friend or to your coworker or to a family member. And what do we do? We fight it, don't we? Oh no, not with him, not with her. It's gonna be awkward. They're gonna ask a question that I won't have the answer to. I'm gonna look weird. It's gonna make things funny, right? but if you'll actually step out. What happens? You ever stepped out when someone told you, when God's spirit told you to witness? And when you did all of a sudden, you're having answers to questions you didn't even realize you had the answers to? You're giving sermon illustrations you from 10 years ago? Like you're quoting verses like Billy Graham. Your wife is like, what in the world? Who are you? What happened? Power steering. The moment you stepped out, there was power in that moment. It's like the priests in the book of Joshua, when they're coming into the promised land and the Jordan River's in the way and that Jordan River did not part until they put their foot in the water and then it disappeared. It's like God's waiting for us to take a step. Hey, take a step. I'm prodding you to do this. And when you do, you'll find power. Read the word. I don't understand it. Read the word and you do. And all of a sudden you find God's spirit gives you understanding in scripture and it ministers to you and it blesses you. Serve, I don't know if I can serve that way. And you do when you find power. Go on the mission, below, that's scary. And you do when you find power. When Paul labored, he found power. This is one of the keys to the Christian walk. Take a step out and watch and see you get empowered. It's brilliant and beautiful. And a little side note on this. Paul says, I struggled, I struggled greatly. All this struggle in ministry. If you've ever wondered like, What's my call? What's the ministry God wants me to do? I think some of the greatest ministries in the world are birthed out of great struggle, great pain. I think incredible ministry, read church history, incredible ministry was birthed because someone went through a very dark valley, deep valley. They found God's presence in that valley. And when they emerged from that valley, they started a ministry on it and brilliant things happened. It's 2 Corinthians 1. With the comfort you've been showed in your hard times, comfort other people. You wanna know great ministry? Where have you been pained deeply? And that bursts great ministry. So Paul has a philosophy, work hard. And when you do, man, you find power streaming You're like, wow, there's more power to do this than I could have ever imagined. And then lastly, Paul says in ministry, you got an enemy. It's bad doctrine. Verse four. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. In ministry, there's an enemy, bad doctrine. The rest of this chapter is bad doctrine. It just goes into details about the bad doctrines that had infiltrated the church at Colossae. What's scary is it says this, delude you with plausible arguments. Bad doctrine is going to sound plausible. It's going to sound legit. There's going to be Bible verses that people back it up with. That's the way it's going to be. It's scary, but bad doctrine will derail your walk with God. I'll give you an example from my own life. First half of my life, maybe more, I had this idea about God. I don't know where I got it, but it was deep inside of me. Maybe it's covenant of works all the way back to the Genesis chapter two, I don't know. But I had this idea, whenever something bad happened in my life, it was God getting me for sin. You ever felt that way? You get sick, you're like, man, what did I do wrong? I got sick. God must be punishing me somehow. My car had problems, blew up, whatever it was. Oh man, God's getting me. Not the fact that I didn't change my oil, God's getting me. An unemployed, can't find a job. Oh, this must be God punishing me. Relational drama, God's getting me. And I had plenty of reasons to think why I should be punished. I've been unkind, I've been untruthful. I'd been generous with people the way I should be generous. I hadn't read my Bible enough. I hadn't prayed enough. I'd listened to some gossip. I'd replayed the gossip to other people. There's plenty of reasons why God should punish me. I had tons of them. So here's what happened for those years. I was constantly waiting for God to whack me. When's the next whack coming? Because I know I deserve it. When am I going to get sick again? When am I going to get fired from my job? When am I going to flunk it, right? You just have this weight on you of, uh, God's going to get me. You know what happened in my heart? toward God during that time, I did not like God. I did not like him. He was like a bad boss. I just want to avoid him and get away from him. Michael Scott from The Office, things will get awkward. I just want to get away from him. He's awkward, no, right? That's what happened in my heart. I didn't like God. Here's what Satan loves to do. He loves to take a scripture and Satan knows scripture. Read. Matthew chapter four, when Satan attacks Jesus, he uses scripture, loves to take a scripture, twist it just enough to make God into a monster that in the end you won't like. That's what happened in my heart. how in the world, if it's plausible arguments, if Satan uses the Bible, how in the world do we maintain good doctrine? It's real easy. Let me read for you verse three. He says this. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Right before he warns about being deluded. Good doctrine, Jesus, back to Jesus. What did Jesus do? Over and over, my theological lens is real simple now. I go time and time back to whatever theology it is. If it's from Isaiah or from Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Romans, I don't care where it's from. How does this fit on Jesus? Can I push this through the lens of Jesus Christ? How does it fit on him? That is my lens. That's how you stay safe because in him is all wisdom and knowledge. He's good theology. So I get questions here sometimes. Questions like, Matt, why do you guys take communion every Sunday? The church I came from, we would take it one time a month on a Sunday evening service. You guys take it every single Sunday. Isn't that what Roman Catholics do? Why do you guys do that? You know why? Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul retelling what he knew about Jesus. He says this, Jesus made this command at that last supper, as he held the bread and he held the cup, he said this, do this often in remembrance of me. The one thing Jesus said, hey, do this to remind yourselves of me. The one thing he told us to do, he says, do it often. Very, very important then. Is 12 times a year often for something very important. What other very important thing in your life would you do just 12 times a year? If you decided in 2024, you're gonna get in shape, would you work out 12 times a year? Is that gonna get you in shape? Yeah, pear-shaped, that's what you'll get in. (laughs) If you're saying, man, communication with my spouse is really important in 2024, are you gonna have deep, good conversations with your spouse 12 times a year? Only if you want divorce, right? Do this often. Well, Matt, at my old church, they used to warn about taking communion unworthily. Like, look out. Make sure you're worthy to take communion. Who in the world is worthy to take communion? My goodness. You want to get on theological conversation? Tell me who's worthy of that, right? Well, you know, it's 1 Corinthians 11. That's a whole different discussion. It's about gluttony and people being rich and those that were poor being left out. It's a whole different conversation. But if you do that, if it's about, Self-reflection, if it's about me thinking about how bad I am this last week. Who am I remembering? Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of how wicked and terrible of an idiot you are, Matt Heverly, which is what would happen. What does Jesus say? Do this often in remembrance of me. See, we do it not to remember how bad we are, because we are. We do it not to figure out who's worthy because we aren't. We do it to remember Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of faith. We do it to recalibrate ourselves to true north. We do it to get our eyes fixed on Jesus alone. That's what we do.